everyone, welcome to the sixth episode of Shrishti's Arena. I hope you guys are keeping safe and healthy. Today we have uh, Raju for our discussion on gender fluidity and issues that are being faced by people belonging from LGBTQ community working under the STEM domain. And firstly, I would like to introduce and talk a little bit about Raju and their background. Raju is currently working at Novartis as a senior analyst and they will start a master's degree in the field of pharmacology. They are a proud LGBTQI representative and belong to the gender fluid community. Talking a little more about their career background, they have also worked with esteemed companies such as GSK Knowledge Center, Equivia and Inji. And not to mention about their current life through, they are pursuing masters in public health and health economics at Indian Institute of Public Health. Let's get hooked on to our today's discussion. And if you like this video, please make sure you hit the like button, subscribe to the channel, and stay updated. And I hope you enjoy the video. Today we have Raju with us. So, Raju, before I start on to our today's discussion, I would love for you to give a little bit and talk a little bit about yourself to our audience. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so, where do I start? Uh, so, my name is Raju, as you already know. Uh, I'm a gender queer, gray uh, sexual, I'm a pan romantic gray sexual. Um, my pronouns are they, them, and I have been working in the healthcare industry, in the pharma industry for almost seven years now. Um, so, that's my day job. Along with that, I also volunteer as the national president of All India Queer Association which is a queer Marxist uh, association, uh, like a feminist union. Along with that, I also uh, am a peer supporter, peer support provider for Safe Access, uh, which is again a queer support group. Uh, along with that, um, I'm also working with Forbes and a couple of other things, a lot of queer support groups that I keep working on and off with. Um, I think that's about me. And I'm also a student of public health at, of right. Okay, uh, so let's jump on to the first uh, topic or the first uh, discussion for today. So, as you mentioned, you identify as a gender fluid person and you prefer your preferred pronouns are they and them. Um, talking about my personal experience, when I came across the term gender fluid or gender fluidity, I personally had a lot of questions and I was not really able to, you know, comprehend the whole aspect in terms of its uh, sexual or maybe like social, uh, you know, parameter in that terms. So would you like to throw a little light as to what, you know, exactly gender fluidity talks about or com comprise of? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, so, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. So we see gender as binaries, right? Uh, that's uh, that's an incorrect uh, way of looking at gender. So biological gender or sex determined at birth uh, is male and female based on the organs. And sometimes we have intersex, uh, which is again a biological output. So this is biological gender. And that's how we define based on the chromosomes or the physical appearances of gender, physical manifestations. And then uh, this is not gender, however. So gender is how a person chooses to express himself, person for themselves. So uh, there are very, uh, like I think 
like sexuality i think everyone of us are familiar with sexuality right so there are people uh, who are interested in a person of the opposite gender which would make them heterosexual and then there are people interested in the same gender which would make them homosexual and then there are people interested in all genders so that would make them pansexual so this sexuality is a spectrum so similarly gender is also a spectrum gender doesn't exist in male female binaries rather you can call it like a rainbow you know there are multiple facets of gender expression so which would mean there's gender queer there's gender fluid there's non binary there's trans uh, so trans people are those uh, who are you know who have a problem with the gender assigned at birth so we call it as asab or amab assigned female at birth and assigned male at birth this is the terminology that's being used so they go through immense amounts of gender dysphoria before they have the transformative surgeries the sexual reassignment surgery or may or may not choose to have it as well so a person's gender expression is like a spectrum i hope that answers your question and in terms of my uh, gender fluidity um so i go with pronounced theden because i am uncomfortable with the idea of confining myself to the gender i'm born it was male neither do i uh, feel comfortable switching or transitioning to female gender i have i have immense gender dysphoria in between these two buckets so i feel comfortable being in between or uh, calling myself gender fluid or gender queer so again it's an individual experience uh, my experience doesn't permeate across the community everyone has their own ways of defining gender and the best person to answer them would be themselves Uh, absolutely correct uh, a little follow up or as to what you uh, said that uh, okay for a layman person like me i when i started knowing about and learning about you know different like you mentioned gender is also like a spectrum and uh, everything for that matter so when we come across like a lot of definitions and, and a lot of theories we often get confused so for a person who is just trying to understand you know these or uh, maybe terms or trying to understand the whole umbrella as to you know for the starter so what is the uh, like a credible data or anything which we can refer to or um, i think the starting point for anyone who wants to be an ally is the genderbred person you can google it up like gingerbread man so this is the genderbred person it explains with a beautiful iconic uh, you know uh, uh, cartoon sort of thing uh, in which you know we have different um, descriptions of sexuality gender and uh, biological gender so you can clearly understand because it's a visual representation right so it makes things easier that would be a starting point but there are enormous amount of resources that allies could uh, google up and find out on um, i would say talk to the person we are always open about talking about our sexuality and gender right as long as you are not triggering a person as long as they're comfortable talking about it you can always ask them what is it that they want to, what is it they're comfortable being addressed as uh, similarly what is it that they want to talk about in respect of their gender experiences or their sexuality uh, we are always open to talking about our own experiences with people who are warm enough to learn and to try to imbibe that knowledge into their regular lives right uh okay so like when i was reading about the whole topic uh 
shifting towards talking about the STEM domain now. So I got adhered with this particular data set that said, you know, 30% of the people belonging and working under the STEM domain, they suffer and they uh, come across disparities and are treated unequally for that matter. So what do you have to say about it? And, you know, like, did you, did you come across any experience of, as such where you could, like, cite examples from? Sure. Uh, so I think I would need to go back to my academic times, the time when I was a student, right? When I was a researcher back in college. Uh, so I was a, a fully funded scholarship student. Uh, so I had a scholarship to continue my education until my PhD. Uh, but then I stopped it at my master's. So there were quite a few experiences. So one thing I want to bring about initially is that all of my batchmates, all of my friends, my lab mates were all extremely affirming and friendly. I had no issue with my immediate, uh, you know, neighbors in my research group. The problem came in when you have to speak outside your research group because research is not limited to within your lab, right? So you have to navigate with new scientists, you have to navigate across universities. This is something I did, uh, though I would not like to take the name of this central university with whom uh, I did an additional research project. I needed to do DNA analysis. So I reached out to them with the help of my guide. So my guide has more or less always been supportive. Uh, he may or may not have known my terms or may not have known my gender or my fluidity or anything about that. But he has always been a perfect, flawless example of how a researcher should be, right? Because what we are doing in the lab is our research. Our personal lives may or may not come into the research. But he has never made it a point to argue or to bring it about in a conflicting manner. So then I went and uh, approached this research lab outside my university uh, to do DNA modeling and other things. And uh, then, uh, you know, I had a lot of uh, triggering episodes. So people follow hierarchical methodology in India. So it's always understood that a uh, professor is a guide and you have to trickle down your knowledge. You don't believe that you as a student are capable of being independently uh, you know, reading up, getting the knowledge. So essentially, it's not just lack of knowledge on sexuality or gender. It's also from this hierarchical notion, the guru-shishya concept that is prevalent across all of science and maybe to an extent in social domain, social studies domain, uh, is what uh, creates a huge problem, a huge disparity for students to stay in STEM domain, right? Because it's always guided by someone and they believe that they are the superior owners on this topic. So when they believe that they have a um, degree of superiority on science, they also believe they have a degree of superiority on a person's gender expression. So I think you might uh, feel things such as growing nails, growing hair, uh, or even um, like, you know, most obscure things like having nail paints uh, as you know, some things, these are very gender affirming for a gender queer or a trans person, right? Having long nails for me has been a really affirming thing to express my gender uh, fluidity. But then uh, when I would do this in a college, when I would do this in a research lab, uh, you know, professors, I'm not talking about my research lab, I'm talking about the additional research I did. So professors over there, researchers over there have a problem. They have a problem with how you want to express your gender. They have a problem with how long your hair is. I don't see how this interferes as long as you cover up your hair with a hair mask. It's not going to fall into your petri dishes, right? 
it's not going to interfere with the um, with the IR signals of a chemical that you are assessing or with anything else for that matter. So why is it that you are bothering about a person's gender expression as long as he's working or they are working within that space? But this sort of navigation is extremely tricky and extremely triggering for us. I know of many few, uh, quite a few friends have had similar experiences in quite established institutes. Uh, one thing I would really like to bring about here is the recent uh, incident that happened in IITs. A caste East incident took place wherein the professor apologized because it was in a Zoom call. So imagine how people like us from the queer community who have to face some gender dysphoria as a personal struggle deal with schooling of our behaviors, how we dress, how we wear things, how we portray ourselves, how we carry ourselves in the world. And everything of this is also being monitored on a regular basis. I've been told in a job interview uh, that my hair is unkempt, my hair needs to be groomed. A friend of mine, a close friend of mine working in STEM domain faced immense bullying from the HR of his organization uh, because they had long hair. And their long hair was their definition of gender for them. And they were asked to chop it off. They were asked to, I mean, imagine putting someone through such trauma where you are being forced to do all of these things, right? Uh, it's your body is your wish. We are comfortable with women asserting it now, right? We decided, I have seen so many stories, so many posts on uh, YouTube and on social media where women assert, you know, strongly that their body is their right. The length of the skirts is their right. The clothing that they wear is their right. But has it permeated into the queer community yet? Maybe not. It would take a lot of time before that conversation happens. And I actually firmly believe this was the reason I was unsure of doing my PhD furthermore in India. I thought if I were to do a PhD, I would not do it here. I'd probably pick a better place, you know, somewhere outside of India, maybe USA or Canada, where people are more welcoming, open to your gender expression. Because you can do your research, but you can't fight your daily struggles. It becomes a struggle for survival to an extent. Right. It's actually very tax saving and could get really daunting. I mean, personally, I might have not experienced, uh, you know, these murder of uh, situations, but I can definitely, you know, perceive it that it's something, you know, people should consider. I think people, if they even consider it as a problem or like, you know, whatever uh, the community go through, it would help a great deal in order to, you know, start making a change or start making an impact on a very smaller scale. But I see uh, people, you know, adopting it as trend and not really continuing, you know, uh, talking about it or, you know, bringing it to the table. So that's, yeah, that's an issue which we can, you know, really uh, maybe solve in a better way. So, yeah, uh, following up to what you said, so when the professors, when they really agree or they comply to the pronouns that a person use, it does embark a sense of acceptance and it gets really appreciated by the people who belong from the LGBT community. Uh, so what are some of the other steps that could be taken up by professors or let's say people working on a STEM domain that could be really beneficial for the LGBT community? 
Um, so I come from an applied science domain. I don't know how the situation is there in pure sciences. Uh, I have had an ex-boyfriend who was from the pure sciences domain, uh, working in a reputed university. Now, now he's moved to US. Uh, so there are people uh, who have worked in pure sciences and applied sciences together. And uh, this is a common issue across uh, the spectrum of science education in India that we don't have um, conversations on sexuality. We don't have awareness. Um, the thought of the top of my head, ISC is the only institute which has an ongoing queer support group. Uh, IITs have uh, a support group, but then IITs have also been problematic institutions, like I just told earlier. So, you know, uh, we need to learn and unlearn a lot of things before uh, we are ready to accept the queer community as is in India. Um, there's a lot of uh, rainbow washing happening across working spaces. I see it uh, in multiple working spaces where there's DNI being launched across as a universal umbrella everywhere, which is a good thing. But when you come to scientific research, people are not aware. I would suggest starting with awareness programs. I think each and every educational institute must have a compulsory or mandatory awareness training program for its professors and teaching staff, as well as assistant staff because that would make people much more uh, feel much more warmer and welcome. Yesterday, I was in a panel discussion uh, where a person uh, uh, told me that after transitioning, he went to his uh, college. And when he went back to his college, um, the support staff, the cleaning staff in the, hospital, uh, in the uh, place where he studied were warm and welcoming, were having no issue with their transitioning at all. They addressed him with the right pronouns. They did not have any training whatsoever, right? Uh, so what brought this out? I think unconditional empathy. The place where you come from versus the place where you want to be and the place where you want to operate in are three questions that every individual needs to introspect and evaluate. And as sooner and deeper they delve into themselves and their own prejudices and biases, the better and safer they can be for the queer community in STEM. Really, really uh, beautifully, and it covered almost every aspect. You know, I think if we, as in on very individual level, if we start to be, you know, um, empathetic towards, you know, people and accepting, that would really create a huge difference. Then, right. So, uh, if we do, uh, following up to what I said earlier, if we do a little bit uh, more for the community outside of references, we can create like a huge impact and an amazing difference. Uh, would you like to add anything to it or, you know, cite any more examples where you have, you know, observed that these small changes does create a huge impact? What do you have to say about it? Sure. Uh, one thing I observed in the West, so I'm a medical journalist by profession. I go cover conferences outside of India. And one thing I notice when I travel outside of India is the amount of focus that they have on including diverse groups in their research and talking about diversity as a part of their research. For example, there were black caucuses in cancer research whom I interacted personally with. There are awards, there are different uh, you know, focus groups, there are conversations on these focus groups wherein they talk about the impact of the disease within these communities. So then uh, in US, you may think it's a racial issue. In India, we can bring in these conversations on caste. 
we can bring in these conversations on queerness, right? Because we don't know how um, a best example in case would be HIV. HIV, it's the pandemic that plagued the queer community for a long time. Were there conversations outside of the queer community in the mainstream that brought in awareness in India talking about these issues? Uh, were there any specific uh, you know, research groups? Were there any specific support groups that were initiated by scientific researchers? Were there close uh, studies, open studies being conducted? So what's the amount and extent of support that you can offer from scientific perspectives uh, to improve and diversify your research? Something that we can always look at. Now again, um, we can also understand that queerness doesn't exist in isolation, right? We don't have able-bodied queer individuals. We can have disabled queer individuals. And when we have disabled queer individuals, their impact on their intersectional journeys is different. So is there any uh, support? Is there any scientific, uh, you know, uh, what do we say, assistance that can be provided uh, towards queer communities in intersections? Uh, can we also incorporate conversations on scientific uh, domains in these, uh, you know, intersectional areas? So again, queer STEM women, how many people are out and open and, uh, you know, participate in feminist movements? Uh, do we even have a feminist movement in STEM domain in India? Is something that we need to revisit. If we do, how intersectional is it? So these are the questions that come up to my mind, you know, when we consider the broader ways where we can sort of diversify in STEM. I think you discussed with me earlier, you're currently working and doing a research which is very interesting that is based on neuropathy and you have worked on the molecular aspects and how the neural pathway is related to the mental health. Uh, would you like to throw a little light towards it or maybe talk about uh, how it could, you know, garner all the relevant facts like the research or the domain that could, you know, help us and so i have few changes to that um i was conducting a research i finished my research on neuropathic models uh, i haven't been working on neuropathic research ever since i am currently employed with a pharma company and i write for them so i no longer conduct research models so this was what i did in my research times then i switched to working in a corporate working with the pharma companies and reporting science so uh, basically, um, I did this change. I did this switch also because it um, it was a immensely safe space for me not to be in scientific research where I could uh, actually get triggered because DNI is a major concept in most of the reporting domains. When you are actually reporting for science, you are at a safer space. So it was a personal decision for me to move there. Um, and then talking about my research, right? So I started off working on neuropathy. I always looked at neural models and I was quite fascinated by neurological disorders. Um, I was interested as a pharmacologist uh, because my master's was in pharmacology to understand how medicines change or help you manage um, psychological disorders, neurological disorders. But then as a peer support provider, for which I'm trained right now, I understand how unconditional empathy, how conversations, how counseling, and how support groups can be used to leverage these conversations furthermore, right? Uh, I understand that therapizing, uh, which is what has been done. I mean, 
conditionally labeling things. For instance, homosexuality until very recently was considered a disorder until uh, you know the definitions of homosexuality in scientific textbooks were changed. There are still many textbooks which have homosexuality as a disorder, deviant disorder. And then there are, I'm a gray sexual. My sexuality is considered a disorder, a deviant disorder in several textbooks which I get to correct it. So um, continuously, you know, over the time, medical textbooks have labeled queerness, otherness, anything that's not cis het normative as a medical condition that can be treated. And this conversation needs to begin within and outside uh, applied sciences and scientific domain because we are in the pursuit of research. We have the duty to question. I think essentially science needs to question, right? So unless and until we question why things are not being done right, why is it that injustices are being permeated across generations? Why is it that queer people and gray sexuals and at the end of the day, even intersectional queer people are permeated across generations with intergenerational trauma is something that we need to revisit. And as a peer support provider, I firmly believe, I firmly believe that this change uh, would actually create a great impact on the mental health of the queer communities and also go a long way towards assuring us that we are safe. We are considered a part of the community. We are not deviants as that's how the mainstream portrays us. You explain it really beautifully and I can really relate to, you know, how that would be really helpful. And uh, so this brings us to the end of our today's discussion. Before we bind up, I would like for you to, um, you know, what is that one thing or one advice you would uh, tell our audience? Or is there any message you would like to send across to the audience or people watching this particular episode? Sure. I think uh, a simple message, uh, this has helped me and I hope it helps everyone. Be kind. Nothing is you know, hard in being kind to one another. Everyone of us are going through our own journeys. So embrace unconditional kindness. That would be beautiful, Rajiv. And I would like to really thank you for, uh, you know, um, taking us time to do this particular episode. And it was really great to have you on uh, podcast and thank you so much. Thanks, Shri. It was a pleasure talking as well.